Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. Welcome to the very first episode of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. I crave being in community with queer people. And something I started to notice as I built a vessel of queer family is that us queers are regularly doing some radical care for ourselves and for our communities. Because of the way that queerness allows us to redefine every space and place that we play in, queer stories are stories of openness of realization, of play, and of justice. Throughout this podcast series, I will have the pleasure of sitting down with queer people from across the country who are trying new ways of doing justice-centered work. I'm so excited to learn with them, and in turn, to learn with you. And so, there's no better place to start for our very first episode of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit than right here on planet Earth. I don't know if you've heard, but we're living in the midst of an epic climate crisis. And it ends up we have been in one for a number of years now. As we reckon with a number of social justice crises, it doesn't escape me that none of the work to achieve human rights will matter if we don't have an earthly home to live and play in. And so that's why I invited Candace Amori to join me today. Candace has led innovative work to build community dedicated to advancing our efforts to reduce the impact of climate change, to increase sustainable practices, and to rewrite the stories of the future of our planet. She's bridging tech, policy, philanthropy, art, science, and business to create a community across disciplines, all in an effort to further climate justice. A bit more about Candace's journey, Candace was the founding director of the Trailblazing On Deck Climate Tech Fellowship, which brought together 650 people across the climate ecosystem in multiple cohorts. Those fellows raised a combined 350 million in venture funding, that's a lot of money. More than two dozen companies emerged from the work and hundreds of emerging contributors transitioned to the climate innovation space. Candace's new methodology for Climate Vine brings together her 10 years of experience and learnings in community strategy building. She maintains deep vertical knowledge as an active investor and advisor to emerging climate tech companies. Candace holds degrees in environmental policy and business and a master's in science in biostatistics focused on the ethics of AI from the University of Michigan. She has lived and worked globally in microfinance, business, and tech in places ranging from Cambodia to Singapore to London. So let's dig in. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the first episode of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit, which is the official name that I've given this podcast <laughs> because I couldn't come up with anything better. Uh, Candace, I'd love to hear where you're joining me from today. I am in Kingston, New York. So it's two hours north of the city. What brought you to Kingston? Oh my God. <laughs> um, I wasn't expecting that question. It's a long story. The The short end of it is that I thought for three years that I was going to move to Europe. Mm. And I spent four months last year bopping around Europe. And then I came back for my cousin's wedding and I was like, I don't think I'm going back to Europe. And so <laughs> I had to figure out what was next. And my friend Willow, who you know, who should totally be on the show, um has a two bedroom two bedroom in Brooklyn and was like you and I should buy a house upstate mm. and I was like well let me live there first and see and see about that and so this place I like FaceTimed with the owners my first time being in Kingston was driving up to the place on January 3rd when I moved in and wow. I like love this place I love this town I love the Hudson Valley area I love that the city's an easy 
72 hour train. Like I'm super happy. And yeah, like I, I said, right before we hit record, I feel more settled than I have probably in a decade. So you are doing a test run in a region that is queer as fuck <laughs> to potentially do some communal living with a queer beloved of yours. Yeah, no, that's a great, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, that's the plan. Um, I didn't know all of that before I got here either. Like it just happened to be all these things. I love so. that. Well, I'm so glad you're there. It sounds like it's the right place for you to be right now. Um, so Candace, you and I met almost 13 years ago, which is a really long time. Uh, sometime maybe 2010, 2011 at the University of Michigan. We were a few years apart and we were working on a TEDx conference together. So that's what brought us together. And you convinced me to study public policy, which is a big driver of what led me to do my own work in abortion justice today. And then we tried to keep in touch after you graduated. And the last time I think I saw you in the flesh was sitting at this weird health food restaurant. I believe it was like paleo or keto or something <laughs> so like that. There's, they have a great chocolate. It's a great chocolate brand called Hue. It's H-U. And yes. they had a restaurant in New York called Hue. Okay, that's, I recently learned we that Hue was purchased by like Nestle or some enormous big conglomerate no. company. I know, sad. No. <laughs> Nestle's the worst. Nestle seals Michigan's water. Okay, it might not specifically be Nestle, but it's like a, ne a Nestle adjacent All right. corporate monster. I okay. will look it up afterwards. Cool. I'm sure that Hue still makes delicious chocolate. But anyways, we're sitting in this Hue restaurant having like bone broth or something like that. <laughs> And you were telling me, and I remember this so viscerally, about this blessing in your life of these fairy godmothers who had come into your life, these queer angels who became your queer chosen family. And as someone, me, who is reveling and relishing in the power of building queer family right now in my life, I'd love if you could just start off by reflecting on how chosen family shapes your life and what community care looks like in your life right now. So maybe both how you're showing up for your community and how your community is showing up for you. So I, for the fairy godmother's piece, the context there is uh, that these two women, Carol and Archer, who um, just like truly took me in and they knew that they didn't want kids of their own and that they wanted to kind of like adopt younger people in their lives, queer, or not queer, who could use them you know like use their love use their mm -hmm. guidance advice and so I met them I think when I was like 24 and going through just like rough patch um and I see them every time I'm in Michigan I dog sit for them like they are truly a central part of my life um and so I'm glad that that hit you viscerally because it definitely is a visceral part of my life uh and the idea of community and family is super interesting to me. I mean, you know that I come from a giant family. So both my parents were one of 10. I have over mm -hmm. 60 first cousins. They all have like three to five kids. It's just, it's a, a lot of family, <laughs> a lot of family. And they're all in Metro Detroit and everyone lives within like 30 minutes of each other. Most, you know, most of them live within 10 minutes of each other. And your family is Chaldean. Yeah. Catholic Iraqi. Catholic um, Iraqi. And uh, also very ethnically similar to Assyrians, but, but 
we chose to be Catholic and they are Orthodox. Um, and so, yeah, so giant family, very, very important. Um, and like, love my siblings, super, super close to my siblings, close to a lot of my cousins, um, really like love and respect the, the larger community. And also I think could feel from a probably pretty young age that I was just like, it's a little different for me. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, so yeah, I think growing up in Michigan, like I had no choice besides going to university of Michigan, actually my dad, I was like, Baba, can I apply to all these great schools that I would love to go to? And he was like, yeah, of course. So I apply, get into a couple that I like was like very serious about going to. And he was like, <laughs> I was like, can I go? And he was like, oh, that was a joke. You were always going to Michigan. <laughs> I was like, okay. Oh my God. I didn't know this. Okay. <laughs> I mean, not to say Michigan's not also a great school. But... It's a great school. I'm so glad I went. Like the people that I met are still lifelong friends. Like it just, I wouldn't change a thing. And I think that I was itching to get out. And so like all my international travel after I graduated, mm -hmm. I lived in Southeast Asia for a few years that I was moving to Europe, um, always kind of went back to Michigan. And so that pull of, of like my giant family has been pretty consistent. And also my need to build chosen family outside of that family has also been consistent. And my job is building basically like my dream chosen family <laughs> every quarter. Um, and so, yeah, I think community is really important to me. And I, and I, I guess the way that I operate is I have probably five very close friends at any given time, including like, you know, a sibling or two that I talk to very often. And and beyond that, I just have a lot of acquaintances that I call friends. And so people in my life will be like, just have a million friends. And I'm like, I don't know that I would call it that. Like, I think of a very select small group that I am always in contact with. And then a larger group that I, I also love, but just like, don't talk as much to. Sure. Um, I, I think you're somewhere in between, right? Because we've been friends for 13 years. We don't always stay in touch <clears throat> and you're definitely more than a, an acquaintance and so I guess they're sort of I'm being kind of hierarchical about it but <laughs> but like I think for me maybe it's more of like concentric circles where like it's like the closest one and then sort of like yeah. all these layers of it and I do count like even the large the like farthest away layers if I just really like someone and I've talked to them twice I'm like oh yeah they're a friend because I just like them <laughs> like want to hang out again um I want to go back to something you said which was that even though you had this enormous family, you just knew from an early age that it was different for you. Can you share a little bit more about what that means? Are you referring to kind of your awareness of queerness and how there might be cultural differences there within the family dynamic that you were raised in? Was it something else? I think it was queerness in every sense. Um, like I remember being young and tearing up when my own I was like four I was a flower girl I like teared up when they did the vows and I was like why are they putting a crown on the man and a different crown on, on the woman and mm -hmm. talking about how she's gonna like stay home with the family and now he's gonna like go make money like it was just very like even our church service for marriage is very gendered and very um it's sweet at times and it's it, even at four years old I was like oh this this is interesting um, and I also <laughs> yeah even in the age of four I would always say that I wanted to adopt kids which is an odd thing for a four-year-old 
world to say. Yeah. <laughs> and then my uncle, I remember at one point was like, just in passing was like, oh yeah, like, you know, one day when you marry a Chaldean guy. And I was like, mm, I don't think that's going to happen. And I was like 10 <laughs> years old. And I think, you know, he was like from back home and looked at me kind of funny. Like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, like, first of all, why is this 10 year old girl child talking back to me? <laughs> and second of all, like, yeah, of course you're going to marry a Chaldean man. That's what all young Chaldean girls do. I was like, I don't know. They're just kind of hairy. Like, I just like, it was such like an innocent response of like, I didn't really thought about it. I just knew it was a no. This early aversion. Yeah. So, so like, I think there was like that, like queer aspect to it and like the traditional sense that we think of queer. And then I think just the queer aspect of, of like, do I want to live in Michigan forever? Or uh, is it okay for me to travel alone as a younger woman who's not married right like mm-hmm. even that idea um I think my interest I, I didn't like the Backstreet Boys <laughs> I, <laughs> um I don't like shopping that much like there, there, there were all these things I'm like sure they're like I think everything that I've noted so far is like stereotypical queer like it's like okay great you were just gay like you really liked Matilda cool <laughs> <laughs> makes sense but so much Um, of our early definitions and understandings of gender and sexuality are so defined by the people that we're around and that means our family and if what we're seeing is obsession with the backstreet boys and that the quote-unquote woman activity that you go do is go shop at the indoor mall on the weekends I I think that that makes sense that those were some early markers for you of difference yeah no I think they were yeah it's awesome. and, and the the quote a little different for me. Do you know that's from? I'm different. Yeah, I'm different. No, it's from <laughs> so this like amazing <laughs> SNL skit with Kate McKinnon, where they talk about these aliens that that pick up these people, and these two others have this like incredible like spiritual awakening with the aliens. I do know the her. Aliens. And she's like a little different for me. <laughs> goes into, <laughs> goes into <laughs> a really weird situation. So that's um a little different for me. <laughs> So you started to talk about how even the career that you've built has been very focused on an evolving definition of chosen family and how you get to now be around this very intentional community of folks who are committed to bettering the future of our planet. So for the last 10 years, in, in one way or of another, you've been doing this work that's really committed to climate justice. And I just love to hear about what led you there, what keeps you there, and share a bit more about what you're thinking about in the future, what you're dreaming up with your current venture, which is Climate Vine. And I know that it's in its beginning launching stages. So if you could just share some of the inspiration behind it and where you think it's going to head. They're big questions, Kelsey. <laughs> Um, I think the, I mean, for 10 years, I felt like I almost ignored climate was always there, but I, I had no idea how to build a career around, around climate. And Mm -hmm. I thought that the best I could do was like have a career and do climate activism on the side. Um, cause I think just there, it didn't seem like there was anything climate that like fit me and the impact that I wanted to make. And so and when I first left college, I did like microfinance work and so I was trying to do good. And, and the last thing that I did before climate was 
I had been on the founding team of a VR company and I was like, this is so not impactful and so not how I want to spend my life. I was really uh, interested in the ethics of AI. So I was going to get a PhD in statistics and work on the ethics of AI for the rest of my life, which I still think is like a very valuable, important thing for people to be thinking about and working on, especially from like a technical perspective um, around how to just make it less biased. And a social social perspective. But then the 2018 IPCC report came out and it's the famous 1.5 degree report. And because I'd been learning about how in statistics and in AI, you're essentially taking observational data that gets fed into this machine and creates these feedback loops that then um, makes the observational data of humans who are, you know, sexist, racist, homophobic, just more of those things. Cause it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a feedback of patterns. And in the IPCC report, it was like, oh yes, and there are these, they're, they're positive feedback loops because they just reinforce themselves, but of not great things. And so one example could be the melting ice that then releases more greenhouse gases that have been trapped there, which then accelerates the melting of the ice, right? And so right. being able to read that and actually understand some of the climate map and freaking out, <laughs> essentially, right. just being like, why am I working on the ethics of AI? It's like one interesting existential issue. The one that I've actually always cared about, (laughs) the bigger existential issue to me has always been climate. How do I actually figure out how to make my life for the rest of my life, focus on that. And um, I started this program called On Deck Climate Tech, which was essentially just for me because I was getting into the climate space and wanted to be surrounded by the deepest experts in policy and science, nonprofit philanthropy, who had a climate background, who maybe would want to meet someone like me that had a data science business background. It's like, where do these people hang out? Like, I just have no idea. And so I figured out a way to, to get them to apply for something that I was doing to understand that climate is this like very, very complex systems problem. And that even just to like diagnose the problems, let alone solve them, we need people who are doing incredible work in different areas, right? So all the sciences, all the, the government pieces, philanthropy, to like meet each other and understand that they're doing great work and they might be able to overlap and, and collaborate. And so that was the, the beginning of on that climate tech and then climate Vinus is, has a similar sort of ethos around how do we bring people together, help them learn from each other, help them build deep relationships and ultimately help them collaborate and create action. And I think when we talk about climate, the newest IPCC report came out I think all that it does is reiterate that there's a sense of urgency. Like this isn't a problem that we have 50 years to slowly figure out. Um, We would have had that 50 years ago, right? Like we had the information, we just didn't move. Um, And a lot of that is like, is corporate and government, right? Like a lot of this is is this larger systems thing. Um, And so I think it just reiterates like there is both it's a hard problem and there's an urgency required where like the quicker that we can do things the fewer lives will be lost truly sure yeah Um, and this new report just came out days ago from when we're recording this so it came out on march 20th and the ipcc that we've been talking about is this intergovernmental panel on climate change and it sounds like that report from 2018 was a big driver for you to really dive in and now this report that just came out this week has kind of been called in the media a final warning, which is a little ominous, but it's a warning that still has some tendrils of hope. 
because the report did outline some very clear and tangible ways that we can take swift action across the globe to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and names the really real existing damage that's already been done that's irreversible and devastating to our ecosystem. So kind of a both and of like, look, we've done all this harm and there are things that we can still do to disrupt what's happening and not have this inevitable, just exponential spike into a burning ball of fire. Um, so I'd love if you could just share a little bit more as you've been in community with all of these amazing thinkers, makers, scientists, policymakers, what you feel like it's time to do from either like a global systems perspectives, or I know that oftentimes individuals within their communities are feeling like, how can I advocate? How can I organize and respond to these calls to action and respond to this quote unquote, like final warning for what's going on on earth? Yeah, I think probably part of why they called it the final warning is because they're taking some years off. And so mm -hmm. this is like, you know, by the time there's a next one, like we should have made some great progress, um, ideally. I think the the things that um, provide some hope. So, so I'll, I'll name three things. One is uh, I think it's the the community. Well, okay. There's this book called "I Want a Better Catastrophe," and I saw this guy do his book tour, and he came up to Kingston. Um, and the idea there was like, in the best case scenario, that's likely, right? Like if knowing that government hasn't been acting quickly enough and we don't, you know, we shouldn't like rely on government and corporations to like actually do all of this that sure. that is necessary. In the best case scenario, it's like three degrees Celsius and millions of people die. And in the worst, it's six <laughs> degrees Celsius and everyone dies, right? And um, and it's like a shitty way to think about it. I mean, it's we're not all going to die only... at some point. So at least there's that agreed yeah. upon point. It's just how fast. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> And, and it's not to say like, that's what we're constrained to. Like, it's sure there is the most likely scenario and, and we've never been faced with anything like this in the history of humanity. So like things can be abnormal and, right. and move abnormally quickly. Um, but the book is really fun. And it's uh, the, I want a better catastrophe, like adds just some humor around it and, sure. and some like levity, even with acknowledging how shitty the situation is. And that's where I like to lean into is like, we're, it's a, it's an absurdly shitty situation. Mm. If you look at the math and you look at where we're at, and I think ignoring that and sugarcoating it isn't helpful. And I also think that losing a sort of stubborn optimism that, that like, it's not, we still can make an impact. Like if we lose, the idea that we can make an impact and we've lost already because then there's no reason to do anything right and so yeah I, I mean I think that... one of the greatest mistakes that people make is thinking that they are immune to the problems that our society is facing today right mm -hmm. any intersectional justice issue whether that's racial justice whether that's attacks on our democracy whether that's attacks on queer and trans folks or attacks on our planet the um the defense mechanism to like not sit in discomfort about mm -hmm. the pains that our communities are are going through right now is so irresponsible and so I really appreciate you saying that that isn't it doesn't do us any kind of service to to just pretend like it will all be fine like there mm -hmm. is a responsibility to name very clearly that like shit's not fine and 
there there then opens a door of possibility of and how can I get engaged in trying to at least cause the least amount of harm as we move through this life together. 100%. And I think that I'm also surrounded by and have been someone who's been tempted by the idea of like, well, it's kind of already fucked. Like mm. it's, it's too far gone. What can we do about it? And that creates the same sort of thing where it's like, either way, you just ignore it and it's overwhelming um, and you're not really facing it. And so, so stubborn optimism <laughs> is how I like to live. Um, the other things that I think are interesting are when it comes to environmental justice, there is going to be a lot of wealth that comes from this transition. Like we are sure. transitioning the entire, every industry, like any industry that you can think of. So today climate is an industry as soon as possible, it's just the economy, right? And that's, that's we win when the entire economy is a climate-friendly economy. Yeah. That means that we have to change every single industry within it. And the people that have money right now are well, uh, well positioned to continue making even more money, right? The people that are able to invest in this sort of thing, even oil and gas companies that realize that there's a huge opportunity here will make a lot of money. And oil and gas companies also have some of the infrastructure that we'll need to make the transition. Right. And um, and that's just like an objective fact, right? There's neutrality in that, that, that we will probably actually need them as well. But the exciting thing is that there's an opportunity for wealth redistribution if we're smart about it. And if we think about climate justice and where like there's been so much harm in, you know, where plants were placed, um, we can do so much good if we think about, you know, where are we going to put the most powerful battery charging stations? Like, can they be in neighborhoods that can also benefit from the tourism that comes in or mm -hmm. the, um, you know, extra energy that that's funneled back into the community? How do we have community benefit? And the IRA has something called Justice 40 that thinks about community benefit um, in an interesting way. and and. Our first cohort in Climate Vine is around the intersection of government and climate. So I think there's so many nuances there where there's a trillion dollars on the table. If we right. don't unlock it, it's gone, right? So there's some urgency there, both from just a climate perspective and a like, money perspective. And uh, people also need to understand how the different constraints and stipulations around getting that money, what it looks like and how to, to do the community activation piece well. Um, so I think that that gives me some hope is like there is actually an opportunity for wealth redistrib redistribution because there's so much wealth that's that's going to come about. It's and funny that the conversation kind of naturally went to wealth because that was one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about is that I know you've been involved in this space as an investor and you work with folks and companies who are doing these rounds of funding with massive amounts of capital and capital is is just that the seed of capitalism, which is a system that has for the most part broken a lot of communities in terms, of, and it can be kind of the starting point in the root of a lot of the injustices that we're looking at in our society right now. And something that I think Climate Vine is doing to disrupt capitalism is by creating community, right? Because capitalism depends on the lie of individualism and uh, and promotes individualism instead of what Climate Vine's really working to do, which is promoting interdependence and community dependence. And I'd love to hear about the ways that you think about 
of course, what you just said, the like necessity of wealth and capital within the advancements that we're all trying to make and the ways that we can be more disruptive uh, in the ways that we're approaching the work. There's sort of two schools of thought. One is this is such an urgent problem. We can't think about capitalism and these like larger systems. We just have to work with what we have today to mm-hmm. to change because like we can't change everything at once. And then there's the other school of thought that is you can't solve a problem that capitalism has created. And it's very like Naomi Klein um, perspective around around that sort of feedback loop. And I think that there's that's maybe, and I'm curious. <laughs> I want to. Um, never formulate it in this way and I don't know if it's correct but that could also just be the core one of the core differences between the way that like the climate tech community approaches this versus the activist community right like the climate tech community is like we're going to invest and we're um, we're going to use capitalism to solve this like let's you know and then activists are like no we have to think about a different system to 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 do this because the system has created the problem so how can you use the, the system that created the problem? <laughs> you know, it's like that, like, uh, very clear, like after this sort of approach. Um, and when the people <laughs> in power or the institutions in power understand that there is some usually health risk to uh, placing a plant, a railroad, whatever it is in a certain neighborhood, and they'll use that power and that knowledge to place it in a disempowered neighborhood, which often intersects with ethnicity and uh, socioeconomics. And over time, that continues to disempower that neighborhood (laughs) and to empower the people in power. Um, And so I think just like feedback loops all around. And, And I mean, the meta one in climate is twofold. One, the climate crisis aggravates every injustice mm-hmm. like and that's why working in climate feels so important to me that um i could work in you know women's rights around the world and i think that's like absolutely incredible and and people working in refugee rights and women's rights like you're you're effectively working in climate mm-hmm. and i think when i'm working in climate i'm effectively working in women's rights and refugee rights and for me, this is just where I want to be spending my time knowing that, knowing that it has, again, these like <laughs> the feedback loops in these other um, areas of, of just like social justice. And then the second thing is just that the people who have the countries, institutions, powers that have contributed the most to, um, to the climate crisis are the ones that have not seen as much of it yet right and so like the wildfires in california coincided pretty well with the amount of venture capital money that started flowing into climate tech because mm, finally wow. these people with a lot of money were like oh yeah it also affects me and i'm sure there are other reasons right it's not <laughs> it's not the only one and i do think that there's been a sense in the u.s that like okay it's gonna affect people in pakistan right where a third of the country was underwater last year but it's not going to affect me, my family. I'm not going to have to think about this. And now it's like, oh, wait, we all have to think about this. <laughs> We're all on a shared planet. Um, it's kind of like 
COVID 2.0, right? But like yeah. on a much larger scale and- None of us can absolve ourselves from what's literally melting in front of us. Right. And the people, and it is true that Pakistan has has had, you know, worse effects or it's been worse for, for them. And they've done a lot less in terms of <laughs> uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the US. And, and it has been slower for us. Um, and I think just for me, like my family's Iraqi. If I was still in Iraq, then I would have water issues more likely and more quickly than I would in Michigan, which is, has a great lakes. Like that, right. it, it's also just thinking about it from my own perspective of like, I'm very deeply an American. And I think about 90% of the time I'm thinking about like, oh yeah, I'm in the U S we caused, not we caused this, but like we bear the responsibility of, of helping. I don't want to say helping. It sounds patronizing of like, Holding ourselves accountable, <laughs> holding ourselves accountable, spending more money, like doing, just doing. Um, and then 10% of the time I remember like, oh yeah, my family's Iraqi. <laughs> right. And, and I think it almost gives me more of that. Like, maybe it makes me think more about how the U S could be doing more and how I could be doing more. Right. Cause I'm so lucky to not be dealing with so many of the things that like people in the rest of the world are dealing with. And so like my, the Candace Amori that is in Iraq and would have <laughs> grown up there, like that is a very different world for me. And the least that I can do for that person is try to do the best that I can in this um, iteration of me. Isn't it fascinating to think about all the little S's that we could have been? I mean, that all you changed in that situation is place, but suddenly you're on this very different trajectory in the way that you launch into the world. And it's it's such a part of your story and I mean I think it's also telling and interesting that you grew this passion and interest in climate justice work growing up in Michigan specifically because I was actually in an Uber on Sunday on the way home from the airport and randomly my Uber driver worked for the EPA and he shared that Michigan as a state is the one place in the entirety of the lower 48 states that has any kind of chance in really surviving this climate crisis because of its access to water um, and because of how central it is in the country. And so it's a little fascinating just in terms of the parallels of like you, this little Candace Amori brain that developed in Michigan, whose dad said, sorry, no, you're going to go to Michigan. <laughs> um, you're born from this place that like does have some hope in the future. And there are a lot of really great thinkers situated there because of that. Um, and people who are trying to build some really amazing solutions. But can, can I add something there? Like, please. So unless we fenced off Michigan and we're like, no, no one from outside of Michigan can come in. Right. Like if you were from here, then yeah, like Michiganders would have hope, but like every rich person in the country, it, let's, let's say that's true. Right. And like Michigan right. has water and is safe. That means nothing for Michiganders. Like mm. that means nothing for where you're from. It just means that the power in the world, <laughs> if that's money at the time or whatever it is, that can access that will, right? Like Nestle, going back to Nestle, like they right. take a lot of Michigan's water and sell it to not, it's just, 
so I think thinking about like certain areas as safe places or like getting a bunker in New Zealand, like some of the tech people are, right? Like it's just such a wild and just the whole Mars thing, like all of that is just so wild to me to be like, well, certain areas will be safe. So I'll be good because I'm from there. Um, or we don't, you know, like I can be in my bunker. Like it, it's, it's, I, I don't think it totally, it feels logical in the moment, but I don't think it actually is when you think about like a, a planet with how many billions of people. I so appreciate that recentering because that is, it just rings so true to what we talk about in terms of abortion access across the country too. There's this very uh, misinformed dialogue about like quote unquote haven states when it comes to mm -hmm. abortion access and the fact that even if policies are in place that protect care, that doesn't mean real access for people to be able to get abortions when there are so many other barriers in place like insurance not covering the cost of the care or people still having to take time off of work from their jobs and away from their families to go get to clinic um, and just the general stigma and shame that our society perpetuates um, so frequently. And so I very much appreciate you kind of recentering that, that there's no quote unquote safe place when as always in this country, the people who have resources and have identities that give them power because of our systems of oppression will always be able to access whatever it is, whether it's water or whether it's abortion care. Um, and the folks whose lives they're basically stepping on in order to get that and taking advantage of in order to get that will not, um, no matter where they are. So thank you for that. That was a good check. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Um, so I love your mind because I think we both have a shared vision of a liberated future. And that's why I thought of you when I was thinking up some folks that I care about to come and have conversations with me for this show. When you think about a future where we're all free, what does that look like in your head and your heart? And how does queerness impact how you think about that future? Um, so I think Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson maybe is doing more work around this. Just and I, I know like Adrian Marie Brown, who is inspired by Octavia Butler, like the idea of imagining a future is really important to all those people. And they're all actually women of color, which is, um, well, probably says something, but the, uh, I think at the base level, <laughs> that, that was actually a preface to like, I wish I spent more time thinking about this and that I want to, and I want to be more intentional about it. And also like create the spaces for people to think about it. Cause, cause again, one of my ethos around climate vine is just like, and maybe I haven't said this, but, but like, I, the collective power and the collective imagination, um, Krista Tippett also from On Being talks about like the generative story. Mm. She's really cool. Um, I don't know her, but I know her in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this is all me stalling because I don't know exactly what, what I want to say, but I guess what I, what I want to say is one, it's really important to ask this question um, and to be thinking about it. I think like this, the most base level answer I have, which is probably just like, if I've been reading like Thich Nhat Hanh or like folks like him recently is more around, um, I think if people like felt their feelings. Feel <laughs> like your feelings, 
That's Honestly. the call for Candace. Feel your feelings. Well, it's it's also a call for me. Like it's just like internally. Like <laughs> I and actually I don't know. Here's a story for you that you probably don't know. In college, uh, one of my roommates was breaking up with her boyfriend, and then one of my friends, Willow was like just feel all the feelings you'll be fine and I was in the kitchen not part of the conversation like just not like and I I just said out loud like I heard myself say it wasn't even planning on saying it, but I was like what do you mean feel your feelings like don't feel your feelings and it just came out of me and Willow looked at me confused and like maybe a little sad and concerned and was like what do you mean like you're you're supposed to feel your feelings like that's you feel feelings and I was like oh my god and that was, I was a junior in college and truly just viscerally was like, what do you mean feel you don't like just block, lock it up. Like, don't look at that. Like I'm distract yourself, do whatever. Um, so it's been, oh, and then some, my friend passed away in college, you know, yeah. you knew her, Jordan. And after she died, I just like looked at Willow and I was like, make sure I feel all of this. Cause I knew that if I didn't, I just imagined being stuck for the rest of my life. Cause that it would have just taken me. It did take me for 10 years. <laughs> so it's like that, that and other things. But, um, but I think for me, it's been, uh, I'm still, I mean, I'm not great at it, but I think if I felt all my feelings, um, I would be a much better person. And I think that I'm able to do something like climate vines have gotten a lot better at feeling my feelings. And like, I think people can feel that <laughs> when they talk to me um, and feel that sense of ease. And it just gives me more of an empathy to other people. And I think that's part of it too. Um, I'm so maybe. glad you brought Jordan into the space because I was thinking about her as I was preparing for our conversation together. And mm -hmm. in terms of this, this notion of feeling our feelings, these last few years have tested all of us to experience and process grief in ways that I think many folks had not really sat with before. And we literally were forced to sit in our grief. Um, and the celebration of Jordan's life that you all created forced all of us to feel our feelings, whoever was there that day and that weekend. And so I so appreciate Willow's call to, to feel your feelings and the fact that literally when you break down the words that feelings are meant to be felt. Um, and the fact that you brought Adrienne Marie Brown into the space. Um, I was just listening to a podcast that she was on not too long ago, and they were saying that we live in, currently, we live in a world that has been imagined by other people. We live in an imagined construct of power, of the way that we relate to each other, and while that's really depressing, right, which means that someone dreamed up and imagined the current hierarchies and infrastructures and injustices that we're sitting in, that also makes a new imagination possible. And that is immensely empowering when we think about the fact that imagination can take us to a new way. And it can start with something as like mushy as imagination. Um, and so I don't know, I just, I really, I value and I'm grateful for you bringing those energies into this conversation. Anytime they're great energies, um, good people to bring in. The, the other just quick things I'll, I'll know is 
I actually did think about this a few years ago where I was like, understanding how to process grief is kind of a superpower in the world that we live in today. Mm. Because like climate grief is a thing and um, it's different for different people and and whether, <laughs> you know, whether you're in an emerging market or not, and then climate grief looks very different, but like grieving all the endangered species that will be extinct by the time, yes. you know, kids are 10 or whatever, you know, like in 10 years. And so um, I do think processing grief is very important. And I've, uh, I think I've, <laughs> I've like been able to, or I've had the opportunity to do that enough times to like be on the other side and be like, oh yeah, this is actually a helpful skill. And then I think the other thing is like holding multiple truths at the same time. I feel like in an ideal world, we would be able to do that. And I actually think that that's partially being able to talk to people that totally disagree. And as you we were talking about abortion, I was laughing internally because I, I imagine someone in my family listening to this and it's not like I've like, you know, had a big coming out to my extended family. I think I'm fairly obvious. Like I don't change myself, but, <laughs> but, but I also haven't been like, here's my girlfriend or partner or wife, you know, like that. Um, I think that'll be a different story, but they also are very anti-abortion mm. and the church is very anti-abortion and says, mm-hmm. you know, we can't tell you who to vote for, but you can't vote for anyone. And that's, that's <laughs> pro-abortion. Um, and, uh, and so that's also like, that's my family. My chosen family is very different. Right. And I, I also think that it's been important for me to be able to empathize and talk to people that like truly think that, that the election was stolen and Trump should be in office and, um, be like, you know what? I love love you you're my aunt uh completely disagree and factually that's wrong but (laughs) (laughs) like still really love you but still really love you yeah that's kind of a choice we get to make every day huh I think like every person and situation in our life is like a question of can you still love me and we get to choose whether or not we say yes back yeah and good boundaries. I think, I think these are all things that I want myself to get better at. So I'm just imagining it for the world so that then I have to be better at it. It's, it's feeling your feelings, having good boundaries, holding multiple truths at once, grieving. Well, I have one more question for you. Um, so I think a lot about the word queer. And I think that oftentimes it's used as an adjective, like, wow, that's so queer or a noun. I am a queer <laughs> but we also uh have an opportunity to think about queer as a verb and I'd love to hear what you are queering in your life right now I think one thing that's very personal to me is that um I would say I feel like in my this is just very personal um and might not resonate with anyone else but it I, I'm I feel like I've layered on top of my like creativity and like more fluid self a lot of like logical type a sort of things mm. and I'm kind of moving those out of the way and one of those logical type a things is like the sense of certainty so for example being like I'm going to move to Europe and being certain about that for three years and then coming back and being like oh I'm not actually 
and that being a bit of a mind fuck but then questioning the like why was I so certain like why did I not know that things could change change all the time surprise myself like all the time um and so I think that's maybe one way that I'm querying it is like living a little bit more comfortably in the I don't know what I'm certain about (laughs) space that's a really beautiful place to close we're all in gray all the time we're all Mm -hmm. in this nebulous flow and I think we all cling on to the illusion of certainty when we're trying to find control in our lives and um it ends up we're all just somewhere in the middle anyways Mm mm-hmm I think we well, can all be in gray or we can all be in like technicolor rainbow <laughs> as well. Just all the, all the variations of colors. That's a more sparkly way to look at it, which is <laughs> more appropriate for this conversation. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me in a conversation on queerness today and for being a cool queer doing cool shit. Anytime. Thank you, Kelsey, for being a cool queer doing cool queer shit as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, what a great way to kick off cool queers doing cool shit. I'm so excited to keep sitting down with queer people who are showing up for their communities to further all of us in the direction of justice, joy, and liberation. If you have suggestions on who I should be talking to on the podcast, drop me a line at coolqueersdoingcoolshit at gmail.com. Thank you for spending an hour of your precious time with me. Feel free to follow my rambling writings at Kelsey's Disco on Substack. And you can find my social media information in the show notes. You can learn more about Candace Amori's work at climatevine.co. Okay, all ye queers, take care, be well, and do something that makes you laugh today.